Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, we left Dr. Smith dozing as Will worked over the chariot. Will was unaware that within moments, Dr. Smith's carelessness would imperil all their lives. You see, Will, even as a boy your age, I was determined to be a scientist. Believe me, there is no worthier ambition. How gratifying it is to work for the betterment of mankind, to strive for the unattainable. How about doing a little striving on this engine? I am a scientist, not a menial mechanic. You're a four-star Goldberg, Smith. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words can never harm me. Maybe I can get faster results this way. Uh, there is no need for belligerence. You have my cooperation. The bad unit is in the centrifugal repressor, Don. I'll see if you can replace it. I await your orders, Mon Capitan. We have to put a new fuel pack in the chariot. Your wish is my command, sir. It's over there. Aye, aye, sir. And handle it carefully. That fuel could explode on contact with air. Never fear. Smith is here. If you have no further use for me, I shall return to my quarters on the Jupiter II. A great feeling of weariness seems to have taken possession of my body. You're always tired and hungry. That's your natural state. Don, do you smell something? The fuel pack. Get back and get us more Welcome back, folks, for episode 11 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 11th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Wish Upon a Star. Now, this is one I know I've watched in the last year, but not one that I recall watching multiple times. Uh, did you remember it? No, I didn't have any recollection of this one. Okay, well, that'll be fun then to talk about it. A few production notes before we begin with the story. The script writer for this one was the 42-year-old Barney Slater, who would go on to write 22 episodes of Lost in Space, second only to Peter Packer. He's back for this one, and actually he wrote this script before he was called in to take over from Herman Groves on The Sky is Falling, the one we talked about last week. And I like this script because it has some good themes like 
the dangers of greed, be careful what you wish for, even the pitfalls of technology and automation on the human spirit. And it also uses a premise that was originally supposed to be part of the Invaders episode, but got cut when that episode was timing out long. And that is having Dr. Smith banished from the camp and then making a discovery that forms the basis for the rest of the episode. It works so well here that it will show up again. Yeah, it would have seemed rather awkward to have that at the beginning of previous episode and then in this episode too. And you didn't miss it at all in the other episode. Yeah. Except like you said, it seemed a little odd that he happened to have a, a rifle or a pistol with him. But, you know, with a Smith, who knows, uh, I, he might carry that around just to do some practicing or to feel important. You never know with Dr. Smith, do you? The director for this episode is the 43-year-old Sutton Raleigh. We had mentioned before he had a good career up till now directing TV westerns. This episode was filmed from the 27th of October through the 4th of November, 1965. Raleigh was returning for his second effort on Lost in Space. He had directed The Oasis previously. And even though he went over the allotted filming schedule, completing the shoot in seven versus six days, Raleigh managed managed to avoid the axe with Irwin Allen and would complete four episodes of Lost in Space and three of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. During the production of this episode, the cast and crew received some good news, and that is that Lost in Space had been picked up past the original 16 episodes ordered by CBS and would at least finish out its first season, and that had to put Irwin in a good mood, even though Lost in Space was falling farther behind its production calendar, something that would soon catch up with the producers. Well, it didn't sound like they actually missed any of the uh, air dates, which is something that Star Trek did a few times, so... Yes, they came They came awfully close, and we'll talk about that in a couple of episodes because they found some creative ways to avoid that, but you're right. They, they didn't miss one, but they got lucky a couple of times, and they got creative as well, so... Oh, thank goodness the president was assassinated tonight. We get a reprieve for a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know what kind of luck you're going to be grateful for, I guess, so... Yeah. This episode aired on Wednesday night, November 24th, 1965, and it was only the second episode that got a summer repeat on September 7th, 1965. Invaders was the first. All the regular characters are featured. The guest star was the alien owner of the thought machine that was named the Rubberoid in the script, and he was played by 29-year-old actor Dawson Palmer. The six-foot-eight Palmer had already appeared uncredited as the bubble creature in The Derelict, and I guess uh, at least he got to stand up in this one. He would return numerous times in the future in other monster costumes. I'm glad they didn't mention his name in the actual episode. Uh, Rubberoid doesn't do very much for me. (laughs) No, Rubberoid doesn't do much for me either. It's kind of funny. Anyway, let's get into the episode. Act one, we're back to a little bit of a long opening. It times out at about eight minutes. The teaser opens with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. We see Smith sunbathing on a chase lounge. He's in full space fatigue costume, complete with those eye protectors. Don and Will are working hard on repairing the chariot, and Smith is blathering on about his achievement when Major West asks for help. And when he balks, Don nearly threatens Smith, who, oh, he gets a change of heart there and jumps up to help. I'm a scientist, not a menial labor. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So Now, that was meant to impress Will, but of course it just offends Major West. Yeah. And that's when West starts slapping his uh, solar wrench like he's going <laughs> to you know, 
<laughs> yeah. Smith on the backside of his head or something. Yeah. It doesn't take much to get Smith up and out of his seat. But uh, Don says, hey, we need the new fuel pack. It's over there on the table. And just go ahead and uh, take it over to the back of the chariot. Smith has to pick up this little bread basket sized tank and move it all of six feet to the chariot. And he's complaining the whole time. And But Don does warn him. He says, uh, be careful now. That's uh, filled with highly volatile fuel, to which uh, Smith says, uh, never fear. Smith is here. <laughs> yes, well, we're all afraid, right, when Smith has something dangerous in his hands. So. Yeah, whenever he says, never fear, Smith is here, it's really a harbinger that you should fear something terrible is about to happen, because it usually does. <laughs> exactly. And, and this is no disappointment either, because uh, he takes it over to the back of the chariot, and he has this look of disgust on his face, and he just drops it on the ground. I mean, he looks like, oh, and he's, he, he dusts off his hands, is like, oh, that's all. Meanwhile, he comes back and says, you know, a great feeling of exhaustion has overcome, <laughs> overcome me. I think I'll take a nap. And Don's like, uh, you're always tired and hungry, Smith. Don has some yeah. good lines in this one, I think. Oh, he practically spits it out. He says, that's your natural state. <laughs> <laughs> well, it and you notice, that, you notice that Smith looked at Don behind his back before he threw that thing down. I mean, it was, it was a spite move. You know, he did it you know, he could have just set it down, but he he did no. it out of spite because he was being very, very uh, cooperative with Don, but it was all a put on. You it, know, he yes. really resented it. He did. He did. But as soon as that canister, that tank hits the ground, it starts to smoke and no one seems to notice it at first. And as Smith is wandering back to the ship, all of a sudden the boys say, oh, do you smell something? And Don sees what's happening at the back. There's smoke billowing out of that tank and he tells Will to run. And just as Will gets out of the way, Don runs over there and grabs that tank and throws it up and it just explodes in midair, which I thought was a cool shot as well. Yep. Great shot. Yeah. It, it's kind of interesting too. And in, in the book, they were saying this is this beginning was uh, it was originally scripted differently. It wasn't going to be an exploding tank. Smith was going to do something that would lead the chariot to just about run over Will. But of course, CBS said, "Yeah, you can't have the uh, kids put in that much direct danger." So they changed it to this. So, oh yeah, of course. See, you know, kids much prefer to watch programs where the adults are the ones getting hurt or killed. And <laughs> you know, they may be young, but they're not stupid. It only makes sense. <laughs> Well, the explosion knocks Don out cold, at least it seems so, and as the dust settles, Will runs back over to help. Smith is just sort of frozen there by the entrance of the Jupiter II. Professor Robinson hears the blast and comes running out of the Jupiter to help, and Smith sort of regains his composure and follows. Don comes around, and he wakes up, and he's immediately sore at Smith. I told you to be careful with that pack. We could have all been killed by your stupidity. Of course. Oh, if I had the intelligence of a goose, I'd still be a genius compared to you. <laughs> Yeah, he's saying, well, it's not his fault. It's a malfunction. Of course, he's covering. He knows he dropped the thing there. But it results in a shouting match between Don and, and Smith. John breaks it up and says, hey, just tell me what the whole story was, because he wasn't there at the beginning. Both men clam up for some reason. And then John turns to Will and says, well, exactly what happened? Tell me. And Will seems reluctant, but he gives him the story. It, you know, John seems ready to forgive Smith, but then he sort of drops a little trick on Smith. He says, okay, well, let's just forget about this, but what about the accident at the hydroponic garden? Oh, yeah. See, you know, this is what I love about this scene is you really see where John lies in this whole thing. He, he He's like one of these guys 
on the um, you know the debates, the political debates, they always pretend to be neutral, but by the questions that they ask and the people they pick in the audience and the way they kind of subtly nod their head in agreement with the people who are insulting the people that they don't like, you, you clearly see whose side they're on. And anytime Don and Smith have one of these arguments, he always does the same thing, which yeah. is he lets Don get in the, the really juicy insults, and then when Smith tries to <laughs> retort, he says, all right, that's enough of you two. Yeah, you know, exactly. He cuts them off. You know? And it's the same way with this. The only reason he kind of says, well, you know, Smith, maybe you're right. We should just forget about the whole thing. And you're going, what? That doesn't seem like John. Well, he's setting him up here, you know, because this is what he's really after. He so is. proceed. This is great. Yeah, because he has a smile on his face. And he says, uh, well, what about that accident at the garden? Let's discuss the accident at the hydroponic garden. The garden? Well, it was your responsibility this week, wasn't it? As a matter of fact, it was. But I've been so busy. Hey, you haven't had a chance to do anything about it. That's very true. I was just about to go over there, as a matter of fact, when you arrived. If you'll excuse uh, me... No, 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 no. Save yourself a walk. We don't have a farm anymore. What happened to it? It died of neglect. Oh. I'm terribly sorry. Unfortunately, Dr. Smith, your being sorry doesn't make up for lost food. I don't know what to say. Yeah, well, I do. I don't know how the others feel, Smith, but I'm fed up to the teeth with you. Every time something goes wrong around here, you're always at the bottom of it. You're nothing but a troublemaker, and the sooner we get rid of you, the better off we'll all be. Are those also your feelings, Professor Robinson? I see. But there seems to be only one recourse left for me. I shall leave. Immediately. Let him go, Will. Yeah, let him go. So next morning, we're at the breakfast table, and Penny, Judy, and especially Will, they're all disturbed at the prospect of Smith being turned out there on his own. And there's a funny little line here. Will's saying, well, you know, Dr. Smith can't even blank for himself. And I had to listen to that several times before I realized that he was saying shift. He can't shift for himself. But I thought it was another word entirely. But then I thought, mm, no, there's no way that CBS would let that go by in 1965. Yeah, that would be the, the blooper. Uh, <laughs> incredible. Uh, uh, I mean, that would be one for the ages. It really but would. I always get a real charge out of whatever they break out this futuristic hard plastic tableware, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're like trying to impress us with this stuff. I mean, back then it must have been like, cool, and hey, this is unusual. And of course, now it's the height of cheapness. Yeah, it's know? at the dollar almost, store, right? <laughs> you almost expect a, a Judy to break out in song, you know, oh, come to my party, my Tupperware party, and see ways of beating the high cost of eating by locking in brushness but at that point you know every this was all the rage so they do that a lot in lost in space and it's one of the dated things that makes it kind of fun yeah it is it's out of its time for sure the next scene we see uh smith is all decked out in his travel gear and he's coming out of the jupiter 2 he's got his park on he's got a, a laser rifle and he starts to make his pathetic goodbyes and maureen gets up to offer him some food but of course he refuses and he's full of self-pity and gives them one more chance to beg him to stay, but John sticks to his guns and off the good doctor goes, trudging out into the wild unknown. And he even has a little sorrowful wave goodbye to Will, and everybody looks sad. Well, you mentioned John sticks to his guns. 
Uh, but he actually allows Smith to take a laser rifle with him. Yes. I, I guess they figure it's worth losing a weapon if it gets rid of Smith or something. <laughs> well, something in the back of my mind tells me they think he'll be back eventually, but they're, maybe they're just trying to teach him a lesson. But uh, yeah, he, he looks pretty pathetic as he goes back out into the wild there. So before we go to opening credits, Maureen tells a dejected moping Will to take his elbows off the table. That's right, kids. You could be all the way on the other side of the galaxy, struggling to survive, but you're still not allowed to put your elbows on the table. <laughs> oh, that's true. So Let that be a lesson to you, amongst all the other lessons we're going to learn tonight. Take your elbows off the table, dear. When we come back from the credits, John is making his nightly rounds below deck, checking that everyone's tucked into their space blankets, but when he checks on Will, he's still awake and he can't sleep. He's worried about Dr. Smith, and John reassures Will that, oh, he'll be all right. He's probably already asleep by now, but when we cut to Dr. Smith, we see that he's managed to start a campfire, but he can't sleep either because of all those strange creature noises out there. And there were some pretty cool noises out there. They sounded like real animal noises, but I couldn't place them. Did any of them sound familiar to you? Yeah, it sounded like some sort of tropical bird or monkey cry. Yeah. They probably slowed it down or put a special filter on it to make it sound even more strange. But I love this scene, everything about it. The sounds, the intense close-up, the editing, the pans across the bushes. Yeah. And that simple but effective over-the-shoulder shot of the alien kite creature flying towards us and flying right over Smith's head. I call it a space goblin because it was very reminiscent of the underside of a stingray. It was just really, really great stuff. Yeah, and you only see it for a second, but it sure makes an impression. And uh, in that second, Smith manages to squeeze off one little laser bolt from his rifle, and it dings it anyway. We don't get to see what happens to it, but he's clearly rustled by this. I'm guessing Smith wasn't much of a camper before he got lost in space, and he has some little line about, uh, oh, if only this night would come to an end. I know I won't sleep a wink, but of course... Yeah, later on he's going to brag to Will that he's an expert woodsman and slept like a baby. You know, he's so full of shift. He is so full of shift. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I thought this episode, you know, this this is one of the things we've talked before about colorization and everything. And I thought to myself when I was watching this, you know, if you had done this entire episode shot for shot, just like it had been done, but done it in color, it would have a, had a totally different effect on me. I think the mood with the black and white is just something to admire. Uh, Absolutely. And wait until you see the chase scenes with Smith and the alien. They look like they were straight out of those black and white Universal monster movies, complete with the night shadows yes. and leafless scrub trees everywhere. This film, it's film noir during the family hour. It Where is. else are you going to see that? No, you, you don't. So we cut to the next morning and Smith, who won't sleep a wink, is in fact sleeping because we, we first see some footsteps approaching and there's menacing music and we pull back and we see it's actually Will and he startles a uh, sleeping Smith awake. It's kind of a cheap scare, but it's fun. And he... <laughs> wakes up the good doctor he says he has some breakfast from smith who says oh i dined very well last night but i do hate to waste good food <laughs> and he just gobbles it up you know like he's starving of course <laughs> yes mm, mm, it's so good yes yeah it looks pretty good <laughs> so and he does look perturbed when it runs out <laughs> he definitely looks perturbed when it runs out so uh, will inform smith even though he's a quote expert woodsman his campsite is poorly chosen because it's in a <laughs> 
a low spot that will flood if it rains. So they set off to find a better site, and that's when they happen upon a very strange site. And when I first saw it, I thought it might be the rib cage of a dead cyclops. But no, they inform us right away that it's the wreck of a, an alien spacecraft. It must be centuries old. And that kind of makes sense because it's down to nothing but the support ribs. There's not much skin left. It's all covered with cobwebs. What did you think of that, that wrecked set there? Well, we were supposed to know it was artificial because it was wrapped in Reynolds wrap, <laughs> aluminum foil. You know, that was it. But uh, I, I liked it. It didn't make a whole lot of sense, at least not by 1960s standards. I mean, why would a spaceship have a rib cage? Nowadays, we'd probably call it organic spaceship, you know, biometrically designed and grown. Maybe they could have made that claim, you know. So it was actually a, a living craft until it crashed and died. Of course, that wouldn't explain why all the aluminum foil was on it, but unless the pilot wrapped it in that after the crash so that he could cook the meat and eat it. But like Smith, he hated to see good food go to waste. <laughs> Yeah, they went from uh, saran wrap to Reynolds wrap in this one. But uh, I do want to mention an interesting fact about that wrecked ship that I didn't catch, but a listener, Ron Gross, who's well known among Lost in Space fans for his uh, series-inspired artwork. He had listened to our show on Invaders, and he said he remembered us mentioning that that alien ship in that episode was one of the rare props that wasn't reused. Well, it turns out I was technically correct about that, but in fact, the cradle from that ship is actually part of the wreck in this episode and I've watched this episode a couple times like I said and I never noticed it but if you look at it again and he actually sent me a screen grab it is there the cradle at least and it's turned on its side so that's yeah. probably why I didn't recognize it but you'd uh, never notice it unless you know you were <laughs> you're like him or like us and you spend far too much time <laughs> looking at these things yeah yeah but I mean I appreciate him paying attention to and listening to the podcast and giving us that detail so uh, oh yeah I mean it's like he earlier said you know that that scene of the the space goblin only lasted for a second you only see it for a second well maybe you only see it for a second but i see it for several minutes because i just sit there and replay it over and over and over again it's pretty cool it really is so yeah. will says oh gosh dr smith we've got to go explore this uh this alien wreck and Smith doesn't seem interested at all. And that was another good shot, I thought, because you're looking at the two characters through all those cobwebs. It was kind of a neat effect there. They're like, oh, oh yeah, so those cool cobwebs, they keep reappearing and they're, they're always gargantuan. Yes. And you have to ask yourself, what kind of spiders make these things and why don't we see any of them? And if, if they're not creepy enough... What about their cousins, the giant scorpions? Or if that's not weird enough, what about their kissing cousin, the football-sized ticks? I mean, these things, this, this planet's got to be infested with some incredible insect monsters. But alas, we don't see those. Yeah. We do see their handiwork, though. Their spiderwebs are pretty cool. They are. And, and, and Will kind of swims through it. You see, he kind of parts it with his hands, you know, and then he kind of dives through while Smith kind of sits back and allows Will to do all the actual web-touching Go ahead, lead the way. And he convinces Smith to go along because he says, well, this would make a good camp spot, which is what is actually going to happen. And they get in there and they take a look around. And uh, Will is there for just a minute or two before he tells Smith, well, I guess I should get back to the Jupiter too because no one knows that I'm here. But Smith Smith uh, doesn't like the prospect of being left alone there so quickly. So he does manage to convince Will to stay a bit longer. And he says, you can watch me set up the camp. You don't have to do anything. You just sit there and watch. But Will, of course, is not going to do that. He quickly 
typically volunteers to pitch in. Just before we go to the end of this act, Will notices a strange device over to the side. It looks like a silver hat-sized cone kind of sitting on a little pedestal. And of course, Smith isn't interested at first. He will be later, but because he's more interested in getting his bed all made. Without even thinking about it, Will just tries it on because I guess it kind of looks like a hat. And he says, how did I look? Oh, he looked like the dunce or something like that. On Halloween. Yeah, mm-hmm. the dunce on Halloween. That's right. Then Smith sort of pauses to say, Oh, you know, Will, I could eat a few more of those rolls you brought me for breakfast. I wouldn't mind having something to eat myself. From nowhere, this large platter of smoking, uh, I don't know what, it looked kind of like shish kebab to me, but it just appears with that nice popping noise from nowhere. (laughs) And that's what we're left with at the end before we go to break. Then when we come back from break to start act two, Smith and Will are still taking in the sight of that strange alien dish steaming before them. And they're asking, where did this come from? Will sort of guesses at first, he says, you don't suppose this device could have had anything to do with it? And Smith decides to test it off. Actually, he thinks about it at first, doesn't he? Yeah, he says it at first, and and then when when Will makes the connection too, he says, "Well, we we should test it." And he starts to put it on his own head, and then he thinks the better of it. He says, "Here, you think of something again." <laughs> Typical Smith, right? Yeah. 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 So he does. He puts it on Will's head, and he says, "Hey, think of something that you really want." And Will goes through a couple of things. He says, "You know what? I really want is some apples." And says, "Smith goes, well, think hard about apples," and in a second, it just starts raining apples and not wax apples but uh, as will said it's the real thing oh yeah they're, they're like completely pummeled with them you know and yes. you can you can bet that the rest of the off-screen cast and uh the people who are doing the the special effects and the sound man and everything they're just enjoying pummeling these guys with that <laughs> and i imagine don is especially over there really putting his his pitcher's arm into those apples while he's throwing at smith you know Yes, it's right above Smith's head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're clobbering him with it. Well, Smith immediately realizes that he struck gold. He's got something worth more than all those diamonds he had in his eye a few episodes ago. And he says something like, oh, we have a wonderful instrument. But of course he warns, they must tell no one. Boy, we have a wonderful instrument in our possession. However, until we fully explore the full potential of this miraculous machine, we must tell no one. I don't understand. Eat some apples, my boy. Eat as many as you wish. Before we reveal our find, we must be sure there's no danger involved. When we are satisfied, then we'll tell all the others. Are you sure, Doctor? Absolutely. Believe me, I'm doing this for the good of all of us. And remember, this is to be our little secret. Eat the apples, my boy. 
Our little secret, yes. Uh, there's that worrisome phrase again, right, Kurt? Yeah, anytime you have an adult person say our little secret to a little kid, you, you know, all sorts of alarms should go off. But there is one saving grace, you know. When Smith says it, it's a little different than when it's the dirty old man in an overcoat, you know, because he's not really an old man. He's, he's more like a little kid trapped in the body of an old man, a spoiled child at that. And of course, he's very selfish. It's always funny watching him about to take well, like when he was putting that hat on himself and then he thinks, well, I'll just, it may be dangerous. So he puts it on his friend. You know, when you see an adult, that's that's really kind of offensive. But you would expect to see that with little kids. Exactly. You know? And he is, like you say, he's a child trapped in, a, in an adult's body. And, and it's, he's the 1960s version of the Little Rascals, except he's old. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because I, immediately when he says that, it'll be our little secret. And he even has a little line about, go ahead, boy, eat the apples, my boy, something like that. You know, it's sort of like we're in the Garden of Eden and the snake is offering the uh, the apple to... Uh, Absolutely. Eat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, back at camp, there's a nice shot of all the Robinsons except Will clustered around John holding something it makes no sense on an alien world an apple and John says he's found it in Will's room so they've got to get to the bottom of this I thought that was a cool shot yeah absolutely it's a very short scene you know maybe it's only 20 seconds but uh and and the the camera is below shooting upward so it doesn't last a whole minute but it's very economical way of setting up the next scene we know that they know and that Will doesn't know that they know. Right. So that when Will shows up again, we're all waiting for the other fruit to drop. Exactly. And it will, because we cut next to the dinner table and Will is late for supper. And then he surprises everybody by saying, well, he's not very hungry. And Penny has that. We don't get a lot of Penny in this episode, but she has some a couple of choice moments in there. She goes, he's sick. And John says, maybe he's full of apples. And of course, Will immediately goes, uh-oh, the jig is up. They found the apple. You know, that wasn't good planning on his part. So he asks for an explanation. And Will's trying to be a good sport because, remember, it's our little secret with Smith. And he says, he, I, I really don't want to say, but uh, Don tells him, you you know, if you didn't give your word, you're not really breaking a promise. So he does explain everything, starting with the alien wreck, which surprises everyone. Yeah, uh, uh, John says, what? I mean, he sounds genuinely shocked. And you would be shocked. You know, you, you found an alien wreck? Exactly. That was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So then we cut back to Smith's new campsite and things are really looking up he's he's managed with the help of that alien device to upgrade from a sleeping bag to a comfy bed with all these overstuffed pillows and all the wine he can drink ah it's just the life smith was born for and uh it i think it says a lot about his priorities the things he's asking for you know he's got all these luxuries but very few necessities uh, like maybe some fuel so they could get off the planet for example Yeah, or a simple star chart telling them where they are so they can find their way back. But I guess then they would have to rename the show since they would no longer be lost in space. Yeah, exactly. But it's a nice scene and lots of good shots and angles. There's some above shots and everything. And again, it's at night, so all the shadows are creating a mood again. And I like Smith has a little line. The very first thing, he's got this goblet of make my cup runneth over. And it literally does run over. Over until ceased, desist. <laughs> you know, then that's typical of him. You know, he, he asks for something, and then when he gets it, he's mad that he got exactly what he asked for. You know? 
How dare you? Yes, yes. Well, there's <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished with Dr. Smith. So uh, suddenly Wilt shows up and he admits that he had to tell his dad about that alien device. And Smith says, well, that's okay. I was planning to tell him about it anyway. And he... Yeah, sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he offers some uh, French pastry for Will. And uh, Will seems uh, a little embarrassed about it first. He says, well, it wouldn't be fair for me to take it if uh, everyone else can't have it. And we'll take the whole take the whole tray. And Dr. Smith says that he's missed Will. And Will asks, how come you haven't been back to the Jupiter 2 and shown the device to others? After all, it's been four days. Oh, yeah, that was great. He says, uh, well, I've been testing it and everything. And Will says, for four days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Uh, well, these things take time, you know. According to Smith, he was dying to turn the machine over to them just as soon as the weather changes, like when hell freezes over. (laughs) (laughs) He says, well, I've been conducting some experiments, and we'll ask him, how's it going? He says, well, there's some problems, but nothing that can't be worked out. And he says, "Uh, well, I'll be ready to share it uh, with the rest of the family. And Will says, when? He says, oh, oh, eventually, eventually. Will realizes that Smith really has no intention of ever sharing it, and he says as much to Dr. Smith. And he he gives the dessert back to Smith and runs off. And the end of the scene was kind of touching because Smith is left standing there alone. And we can see that he's really been shamed for a change by his selfish behavior. It's one of the first times I actually have seen Smith act like he's he regrets his action, you know, genuinely. Yeah. You know, he has his lower lip sticking out. I mean, Will is showing his maturity while Smith is doing the exact opposite. And, you know, when Will asks why he hasn't shared the machine. Smith him and haws about more tests until Will interjects about, well, what you really mean is that you never planned on bringing it, don't you, sir? Mm. And then Smith says, now, Will, what a terrible thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't that remind you of the famous man-child character from Big Bang Theory, Sheldon? I just, you know, Smith really comes across like that character. Or rather, Sheldon is imitating or channeling Smith in his rendition because it really, really produces that vibe in this episode, as he does in a lot of other episodes. Yeah. Manchild is a perfect name for Dr. Smith. I hadn't thought about that, but that's perfect. So the last scene of Act Two begins back at the Jupiter. Penny is reading her Nancy Drew book, and Will is staring up at the ceiling, and Don comes in to say, oh, that Will shouldn't waste his sympathy on Smith. But Will kind of defends Dr. Smith. He says, I like him, even with all his faults. And right on cue, Smith walks in through the hatch carrying the alien device. Isn't anyone going to welcome the prodigal son home? <laughs> yeah, he heard the compliment, and he says, what a nice thing to say, you know. Or he tosses in something about, like, I heard that, you know, and appreciate it. Uh, so they not only does Will get credit for actually pointing out the, the fact that he still likes Smith, but everybody else has to suffer the indignities that Smith actually heard it too. <laughs> mm, yes, yeah. And Don's suspicious, of course. He says, what's the catch? And said, well, is that any way to greet Santa Claus bearing gifts? And he says it was always his intention to share the machine with others. Don seems dubious, but Smith declares he's going to dispel all their petty doubts by using the machine to create a completely new Jupiter II to take them all back to Earth. Act three starts off with the scene outside the ship where Dr. Smith is holding court with Will, Penny, and a skeptical Don as he ceremoniously announces his intention of creating a new, fully functional Jupiter II. And I like this scene because the music starts off very serious. And then as Smith starts, he says, stand back. I wouldn't want any 
anyone to be crushed when it materializes. The music changes to this very sense of wonder sounding, you know, and he's he's circling around, bring me a Jupiter 2, bring me a Jupiter 2, and nothing happens at first. Yeah, but then Don, of course, takes this opportunity to pounce and basically <laughs> say, you know, oh, just another fairy tale. I don't know why I even believe this had any possibility of happening. And that's when Smith basically says, well, I don't know what went wrong. It always worked before, and big puff of smoke and suddenly you have the Jupiter 2 right before our eyes. Yes, it's the Jupiter 2 but it's not quite what they expected. It looked for just a second it looked like it was I guess it's because of the angle of the shutter thing. the Jupiter 2 is right in the front foreground but instantly you see that it's just a small model of the Jupiter 2 kind of resting on a rock. Yeah, and, all the all the characters who are small in the background run towards it and they become Land of the Giant <laughs> Giants, you know. Right. So it's, it's a very comic scene and they even have this kind of comic music whack, 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 you know. Right. Which, it worked great. It did work great. That was actually uh, the 12 and a half inch filming miniature that they used, for example, in the scene where the Jupiter 2 got swallowed up by the derelict in episode two. And I'd love to have that model. And I think Penny and Will share the same thoughts because they looked happy. They weren't disappointed at all. They just grabbed the model and ran off to play with it, I suppose. But you mentioned that it was uh, apparent, you know, it was clearly a model, but I don't know that it was supposed to be a model. I mean, for when I first saw it, I assumed that it was a fully functional Jupiter 2, it just happened to be the wrong size because Smith didn't say, you know, it needs to be where we can climb into it, you know, so Ah. it kind of, it could be a lost in translation moment, you know, but that begs the question, if the alien can create complete spaceships, why didn't he complete himself another spaceship that he could have left rather than staying behind and, well, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but... You know, he apparently sticks around, so yeah, doesn't well, make a whole lot of sense. It, it, it's kind of a good point, though, that you're making. It's sort of like you have to be very, sort of like with Aladdin's lamp, you have to sometimes be very specific with what you ask for, because mm-hmm. <laughs> if you leave it up to the uh, the wishing machine or whatever, it's going to maybe not turn out exactly as you had wished. Yeah, and Will actually says, I don't think you thought big enough. That's what That was Will's line. Mm, yes. So that's what he thinks at any rate. Yeah. But Smith feels betrayed because <laughs> when everybody else leaves, he sort of looks at the uh, the thought machine and he says, traitor. <laughs> yeah, talk about the uh, pot calling the kettle black, yeah. <laughs> so next we cut to the lower deck where the robot is giving our castaways a report on the device and trying to explain how it works. And I thought this was another well-framed shot as well because the kids are in the foreground, the adults and the robot are in the background. They're sort of talking to the robot and it's just, I thought it was just very well framed and the robot he can't he's explaining how it works but he can't compute it all i guess insufficient data but of course penny has an idea yeah it's a land's lamp yeah how our little miracle worker functions is of no importance it works and that's all that interests me i know how the machine works you do huh yes it's exactly like an aladdin's lamp only instead of rubbing it you just think of what you want we're trying to find a scientific explanation and you give us fairy tales It's a thought translator, that's what it is. The trouble with you, William Robinson, is you have no imagination. I don't care what you say, it's still a wishing machine. Theory and conjecture, nonsense and jabberwocky. We have the gift horse, let us not examine its mouth too closely. Well, did you find out anything? Only how abysmally ignorant we are. Well, um, if you've finished with the machine, I'd like to borrow it. I want to wish up something uh, extra special for supper. An excellent idea, Mrs. Robinson. 
The machine hasn't been used today, so there's really no problem. What do you mean, no problem? Well, for some reason, the Aladdin's lamp, as Penny called it, functions only twice a day. Oh, really? I, I thought it could be used over and over. Aren't two miracles a day sufficient? Go ahead, my dear. Order your dinner. Unless, of course, Professor Robinson would like to have the first wish. No, no, you go on ahead. Uh, I'm afraid I'm a practical man, and somehow I don't believe that you can get something for nothing. Who cares what, it, what you call it? <laughs> yeah, as long as it works, that's all that matters to me. And, you know, he's right. I mean, why sweat the details? Uh, they've got this big plum that's dropped right in their lap, and, you know, are you going to kill it on the dissection table? I was afraid that the robot was going to somehow mess it up, you know. Mm. But he doesn't. And one of the strange things about it, though, is they mention these this Aladdin lamp. Well, all the, the magic lamp mythos usually have, like, you can make three wishes. But this lamp has a different thing. It can make two wishes per day. Right. And that was something that wasn't clear to me because you don't really get a sense of how much time has passed since they found it until this point in the story. I mean, we really don't know. Smith certainly has used it plenty of times, but yet there is a catch. Like you said, it can only be used twice a day. But of course, Smith is like, ought two miracles a day, good enough. And uh, yeah. Coming yeah. from Smith, you know, that's so <laughs> ironic. Exactly. As if he's Mr. Modest. We don't want to be overly jealous or selfish, do we? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he seems very magnanimous, and of course, he likes to be the, the bringer of good gifts and everything. But of course, the answer to the question is no, because with only two wishes a day, there's obviously going to be competition for it. And that's what we're going to get into next uh, with a few scenes. We're, we're going to cut back outside. Don's working on the chariot yet again. I noticed this thing does need a lot of repair work. That chariot seems to be always in a state of repair, sort of like a, a finicky Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> but he's easily distracted, especially when Judy drops by and she's got a very new dress that's very appealing and a new hairdo. And she wants to know how he thinks she looks. And she does look nice, I have to say. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's hot. She uh, She's like Eve again. This is our Garden of Eden theme coming in because she does tempt him from his work, doesn't she? Uh, allegedly for a little stroll, you know, but have you always noticed they go on these little strolls away from everyone else? <laughs> speaking of eyes, uh, Don never seems that worried about running into those Cyclops anymore. Whenever he disappears with Judy for some quality time away from the campsite, you would think he would at least take his gun. Or, to be more precise, his weapon. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't seem to be too worried about that. He's, uh, he's got other thoughts on his mind, apparently. So Back inside the ship now, we see there's a real tug. I love this scene. This whole bit's funny. and This is a, a cautionary tale for all men out there, I think, because there's a tug of war going on between Penny and Will over the thought machine. I mean, it's really, they're basically, it's a tug of war. She wants to order some books on tape, and he wants some sort of scientific equipment. And then Penny pulls a fast one on Will. She says, oh no, stop. I'll, I'll be the big one, you know. And she takes a different tack and she says, let's let Dad decide whose turn it is. Will says, fine, I'll go get Dad. You just wait here. And don't you go anywhere. <laughs> and then, yeah, that, that, that sounded completely, I mean, it was a cute scene, but it didn't really pass the believability smell test. <laughs> I mean, because anybody who's actually had siblings learns a lot earlier than Will's age that if you leave your brother or sister alone with something that you don't want them to use, they're going to use it. Yeah. Don't I mean, you eat on. that ice cream while yeah. I'm gone. That's straight out of Introduction to Family Feud 101. I mean, come on. 
Yeah. He learns it the hard way because as soon as as soon as Will is gone, she kneels down and puts that hat on her head and wishes up for all those tapes and she's so thrilled. Later we see a scene where Will is sitting with John and he's really fit to be tied because he's been tricked and he complains about it. John tries to explain to him that, uh, well, you know, this is kind of what happens. But John decides at this point it's time to call a family conference because this miracle machine is starting to have a very negative influence on the family. And Penny comes out. She's uh, happy at first. And then John sort of talks to her about, oh, how are your tapes? She mentions all these classic composers, you know, like Beethoven. And, you know, this is how you know it's family hour because she doesn't mention, you know, the Beatles or right. Kiss My Astronauts or, you know, any of the offensive names, <laughs> Sex <laughs> Pistols or whatever. It's all these classical composers. Like, what kid listens to that? But anyway, she does. And uh, then he says, well, do you have any uh, from Deceit? And she goes, Deceit? Uh, no, I don't think I have any Deceit. Well, how about Cheater or Liar? Or, Oops. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's really enjoying trapping people in this episode. If you notice this, this is the third time he exactly. set people up for the fall. <laughs> you know? He does. He does. So she, she, all of a sudden, her whole tone changes and he gets, says, you know, I'm very disappointed in you. You compromised your moral principles or for something material and you wound up losing far more than that. She says she's sorry. I was expecting her to burst out crying at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought he was really, he was kind of reminding me of uh, Nurse Bratchett and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, <laughs> Billy how could you? you know? And then Billy goes and kills himself. You know, what do you expect? She collects these, these harmless little tapes, and you're really piling it on hot and heavy and making her feel terrible. Yeah, she does you, look like she feels terrible. I, I can't remember making my kids feel quite that guilty before, yeah. but she does. And then Judy and Don come back from their walk, and John's not happy with them either because uh, Don didn't finish working on the chariot, and Judy neglected her hydroponic garden work, and Will wasn't helping Don. On. So things are falling apart, and it's all due to that device. And Don has some line in there. He says, I guess we've been relying on the thought machine a little bit too much. And Will blurts out, well, why work when the thought machine can do everything for us? Which is, <laughs> there's the point. And this is like, oh, John, this is the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Because he says, you know, oh, well, we were all very happy and working together harmoniously until this thought machine came in. And now it's just turned into a nightmare. So... Yeah, but you know, he may be a kid, but let's be honest, Will is actually being logical here. His dad is acting like a, an Amish farmer who just wants everyone <laughs> to work for the sake of working. I mean, they don't want to use any advanced technology to accomplish their task. I mean, come on. He might as well say, you know, in an Amish accent, return the devilish device to the English lesson, teach us on evil ways. You know, it was just weird. You know, this is a guy who flies in a spaceship. Why would you use the computer? You use the robot. You use the computers for all this stuff. You even synthesize cherry cakes or cherry pies and chocolate cakes but not you're not going to use the wish machine it just seemed weird yeah. but I, I get it you know it yes. teaches a lesson it teaches a lesson and it wouldn't have been a problem if there weren't a limitation on it if there were unlimited wishes you could have I'm sure it would have all been harmonious but uh, you know Guy Williams plays it uh, he plays it pretty straight there and so John has decided it's time to get rid of this thing. It's just causing nothing but trouble. So he storms back inside the ship, and there's Dr. Smith. This was another great moment. <laughs> Smith loves this. It's like, you know, he, he loves to torment the robot, you know, have him be the 
the scarecrow, you know, or tell him, you know, you're worthless now. We don't need you anymore. <laughs> We've got the wish machine. I'm afraid your services will be severely curtailed, my mechanical friend. The thought machine has made you obsolete. Obsolete, old-fashioned, outmoded, no longer in fashion. Exactly. However, you may still be utilized as a menial or a servant, perhaps. Ah, Professor Robinson, you have the thought machine. Is there something you want? There definitely is. And what is that? I want you to get rid of it. Are you suggesting that I destroy our Garden of Eden? Well, if you don't, I will. You do no such thing. I won't allow it. I don't think you have any choice, Dr. Smith. This machine is mine. You have no right to harm it. I do when it endangers our welfare. Very well. Then I'll take it away. I'll go back to the old derelict. That, of course, is your privilege. I'll leave in the morning. And if you don't mind, I'll take the robot with me as a servant companion. Your precious machine can supply all the companionship you need. The robot stays here. Of course, if you don't mind, I'll take the robot along, robot along with me as a servant companion. <laughs> yes, but John won't have anything of that. It's more of this self-righteous preaching from the book of John, you know. <laughs> Smith, it's wrong for you to take the robot to use as a servant companion. We're keeping him here to use as our servant and, of course, Will's companion. Exactly. <laughs> I just love this, Smith. It's like, I want, I want it all, though. I want it all. <laughs> he always has to have two pieces of the chocolate cake. Exactly. <laughs> Extra generous. So, next, before we go to commercial, we cut back to the alien ship where Smith is dining alone in the dark, but he's in style now. He's got even more luxuries about no robot for company, but at least he's got a portrait of Mona Lisa behind him. Which oh, even... yeah, that, that's great. He uses up one of his wishes for a famous portrait that no one else will ever be able to see or admire. <laughs> You have to wonder what's going on back at Earth. You know, did did the actual Mona Lisa disappear from the Louvre? <laughs> what's it, how it's pronounced? Louvre? Don't rely on me to pronounce the French. But, you know, what happened to the actual Mona Lisa back on Earth? Did it just disappear when he wishes for it or whatever? It reappear so it can watch Smith's gluttonous eating habits halfway across the galaxy? You gotta wonder. He sure is having fun, though. He's sitting there stuffing his face with those delicacies provided by the machine. And all the while, he's bad-mouthing the Robinsons and saying how, oh, I can get along fine without them. You know, how dare they, you know? (laughs) And and it's a good life from Smith's perspective because I've got the thought machine. I can have whatever I want. And when he finishes his meal, he drags himself from the table and collapses on his bed of pillows. And then... He's decided just one last thing to make the night perfect, uh, an after-dinner coffee, but he's just too tired to get up and get it for himself. Yeah, apparently he's still got one wish left over for the day, and he's not going to go to bed without using up that wish. (laughs) That would be a waste, exactly. So he says something to the effect of, I say, Zachary, would you like a servant? Oh, yes. We know the answer to that question, don't we? (laughs) You would like a servant, wouldn't you? And that's another nice scene. I have to say, there's a lot of great shots in this because we see Smith's facing the camera and that the hatch is behind him. And bring me a servant. He puts the hat on and bring me a servant. And the hatch starts to creak open. It sounds like a coffin opening to me. Yeah, it's a great sound. But uh, apparently Smith doesn't hear this. You know, the, the loud lost in space 
foreboding music is turned up too loud so he can't hear the creaking of the coffin lid slash hatch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Out from that hatch comes this really, really strange-looking alien. He he looks he looks really weird. What'd you think of him? I liked it. I mean, uh, I, I I thought it was scary, and uh, and I wasn't expecting it. And you know, it set, this is the first time in this episode that the tone has changed all the way up until this point. It's like this whimsical fantasy thing, and now it's turning into a semi-horror thing. You know, and you're waiting for the monster to come slithering out. And it does. And it's a cool, pretty cool monster. Yeah, he's basically, he almost looks like a, a mummy or something like that. But his, his features are very indistinct. I mean, I don't see any eyes or mouth. There's sort of an outline of a nose on his face. He's not wearing any pants, but he has sort of this black shirt or tunic on. Yeah, he, his face sort of looked like, uh, it reminded me of the, uh, the mole people. His face yeah. looked like the mole people, but it didn't have the moles. But it looked like they removed the moles from the mole people's mask. Yeah. And then he had the mummy's legs, complete with the rotting wrap around his legs. And then this black tunic. You know, it kind of bothered me they didn't have any pants, but I've sort of gotten used to that with all these gangster hippers, you know, wearing their pants down below their butts. But at least this monster <laughs> had a little bit of class and decency to conceal his butt cleavage with his tunic, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. it was a long, a size long there. So. Yes, exactly. Uh, but, of course, Smith doesn't turn around. He, he hears the noise that the alien is there, and he says... I'd like two lumps with my coffee. As we go to break, we have to wait to see what Dr. Smith's reaction will be to that creature. I'm sure he's not going to be thrilled. So. Oh, yeah. This is another one of those advertising breaks sponsored by the kidney dialysis makers of America. (laughs) What better way to drum up business than to keep millions of families glued to their TVs in suspense (laughs) instead of emptying their bladders during the few minutes of the commercial break? It was pure marketing genius. It was. Need more bang for your buck? Come see us at Crazy Irwin's Fireworks Barn, located at Gate 115, Cybernetic Avenue on Andronica. Whether you're looking for a big bang to light up the galaxy, or a small supernova to please the kids, Crazy Irwin has the pyrotechnic device to satisfy you. We have the largest selection of sonic detonators, flash powder assortment packs, and colored smoke bombs in all the cosmos, and at the lowest prices. Why go where you have a limited selection to choose from when Crazy Irwin's has everything you need at discount prices? Mega Bang, Mega Selection without spending Mega Credits. We're open late for New Year's, Memorial Day, and July 4th. Do it big. Celebrate with Crazy Irwin's Fireworks Barn on Andronica. We put the bang in intergalactic celebration. Back from the break, uh, we begin the final act, and Smith is still waiting for that coffee as he repeats his request. And, uh, my coffee, please. And then he finally turns around and he screams in horror. 
and he freezes, but the alien really doesn't move. And Smith sort of regains his composure and he says, well, I did ask for a servant. It's not exactly what I had in mind. He sort of comes to accommodation and then the alien picks up the tray and he appears to be ready to be that servant. But then he throws the tray away and starts to beckon at Smith. He's holding his arms out and he starts to moan. Smith all of a sudden gets it. He says, oh, you want the thought machine? And he says, no, it's mine. And uh, he gets up and he starts running away. The alien, the rubberoid, whatever you're going to call him, the uh, monster, he starts after Smith. But it's a good thing he's got bad knees because uh, even old Smith seems to be able to stay a few steps ahead of him. Yeah, it's kind of like those uh, zombies in Night of the Living Dead. You know, you just need to have a, a kind of quick walk and you can outpace them. Yes, but they never give up, do they? No, uh, that's the problem. <laughs> we cut back to the Jupiter and all those miracles from the thought machine are turning out to be so much fool's gold. The fruit in the galley has all turned rotten. <laughs> Judy's hair and her dress are in tatters. Penny's tapes won't play and it turns out that John was right. You can't get anything real or of lasting value for nothing, so... Next, we see Smith is still out running that creature. No wonder, because like you said, this creature is like a zombie from the Night of the Living Dead. And Smith sort of stops along the way to hide the thought machine and keeps moving. So Smith is at least thinking ahead. He's not in a complete panic at this point. But that alien is still hot on his trail. He reminded me more of the mummy, really. I mean, complete with those rotting bandages all around his legs. Those chase scenes at night with the long shadows and the spooky music and dried up scrub trees all around really evoked that universal monster theme. And it was almost like uh, he was following Smith's tracks in the sand. Did you notice that? He was like looking down and it showed the close-up of Smith's feet running through the sand and then it cut to the, the alien. It looked like the alien was following his footprints. Yes, I noticed he was looking down. I was, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because yes, it did look like he was tracking him by his feet. Back on the upper deck, John and Don are discussing all the recent issues they've had with the uh, all the the miracles going bad and will and marine are playing a game of cards and i like don makes an offhanded comment that smith's bound to turn up sooner or later just like a bad penny and sure enough right on cue we we hear a screaming smith crying for help help as he runs back into the ship (laughs) yeah he closes the switch he closes the hatch and switches on the old uh, force field you know your favorite yes oh yeah so, and, and then this is another good line. Smith says, oh, at last we're safe in here. And John asks, safe from what? And then just at that moment, Will goes, look. And there it is. The alien is right outside the viewpoint. And for the moment, they are safe because he starts to come forward and he runs into the force field. And there was a, a cool animation effect there, a little shock of electrical charge or something. And Yeah, very cool. Yeah, but he backs up and he's holding his arms out and he's uh, he's moaning and <laughs> yes, universal monster sound and maybe that was right out of mm-hmm. one of those movies. But uh, the five of them are all huddled and crouched in front of the window, especially crouching as Smith. And John says, uh, "What exactly is going on?" And of course, Smith is like, "Well, I haven't any idea." And he even says, <laughs> "He says, and this time, looking at Major West, he says it's definitely not my fault." <laughs> yeah, and Don says that I don't believe. You know, have you noticed that the greater the emergency or the more stressful the situation, the more likely Don is to deliver a classic <laughs> Smith put down. He's like old faithful that way. I mean, you could bank on him. You know, he sure is. He sure is. So he said, "Well, all I wanted was a servant to pour some coffee, and instead this creature appeared and demanded to take this machine. How unreasonable! I can't believe he would want to take my machine from me." 
Where's the machine, Don asks. Well, it's hidden well, but John tells Smith to return it. And at first, Smith declines, but John threatens to turn off the force field and sends Smith out there alone if he doesn't agree to return it. And that changes Smith's mind, so all four men head out to get the thought machine and give it back to the alien. Yeah, I think the alien's disappeared at that point. I mean, you don't see where he is, so they they feel safe in leaving. They do. They head out of the ship, and they start leaving the campsite, and John says to Maureen right before he goes, just turn the force field on after we're gone. We shouldn't be gone long. I don't know how he knows that, but she does. She turns the force field back on, and just as the men are sort of walking out of frame, all of a sudden, the the, the creature appears from around a rock, and he's he can't be more than like 10 feet behind them. Maureen is watching, all open-mouthed and not doing anything at this, and then all of a sudden, pop! alien just yeah he just disappears again i love that sound effect we get to hear it several times but why didn't he do do that trick before why was he just following smith like a like a mummy as you say if he could pop himself or why not you know teleport yourself beyond the force field you know (laughs) exactly you know it's mysterious so it's cool so you know we accept it but of course, again, I guess I guess Maureen is still in the, of the opinion that she doesn't want to disturb John and let him in on any little items like, oh, by the way, that, that alien was right behind you and he popped out. He could pop right in front of you again, but I'm sure you'll be able to handle it. The bloop has just grown to gigantic proportions, but you don't need to worry about that happening to Smith. <laughs> you got a lot on your mind. We wouldn't want to distract you. <laughs> We follow the men on their journey back to the wrecked ship, and Smith is nervous. Oh, please, please turn back before it's too late. But he seems to recover his nerve when they finally get to the thought machine, and he's had another change of heart. He says, oh, you know, I've reconsidered. I've decided to keep the thought machine. But, of course, John's having none of that. He says, nope, we're taking it back to the alien right now. When they reach the alien wreck, it appears to be abandoned, but the thought machine starts to glow, and then the alien pops right back in front of them. <laughs> Don is ready with his laser, but John tells him, hold your fire, just stand by, you know. And John directs Smith to give the device back to the alien, but again, Smith defers. Oh, he'll kill me. <laughs> Will, you take it. You know, Will's right there, and it's like I get a, another classic Sheldon move, you know. Here, you, you take it, you know, the little kid. And, give it and, to the kid, because, I mean, you know, if he gets killed, it'll be a whole lot less work, because you'll have to dig a much smaller grave, you know. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, John's pretty forceful with him. Did you notice how John just like, sort of shoved him right towards yeah, the alien? Yeah, he I mean, he's like had, a, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, why didn't John do that shoving when they were still in space? You know, just toss him out the airlock, you know, but still. I know. So he, he insists, and our reluctant stowaway reluctantly shuffles toward the alien, and he's holding the device in his outstretched hands. And this was some other great camera work. I thought it was handheld shots, it looked like to me anyway. And we're watching the view both from Smith's perspective and from the alien's perspective as they're getting closer and closer to each other. And again, that whole scene, the night, the cobwebs, it, it's it's pretty effective. It's pretty scary and they get closer and closer. And the final scene is a real close-up of Smith's terrified face as he's handing, handing that device over to the moaning alien who takes yeah. it. Yeah, it was like with the wide-angle lens, it, the whole thing looked like something straight out of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, mm-hmm. only without without the color, you know. It was extremely nightmarish. And it had the great music, too, to go right along with it. It was a, a great scene. It was, it was. And the alien takes the thought machine, and he turns, and he heads back toward that foil-covered hatch, and he walks through, and he closes the door behind him, and 
disappears. Yeah, and I love that hatch. You know, you could tell not only is it covered with with Reynolds wrap, but every time they close the door, the whole wall shakes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's made out of just cardboard. It's, it's cardboard, obviously. I but, mean, but but everything else is so great. You don't care. You know. You don't care. But there's a little minor blooper. I don't know if you could catch it when you were watching it, but that you can actually see the wire that's opening and closing the the hatch there. But again, people in back in the day with standard definition TVs would never have seen that. So, Well, you know, I wonder if that counts as a blooper then. I mean, is it really a blooper if the original audience couldn't see it? Mm. That seems more like a retroactive blooper at best. You know, do you remember how in Star Wars came out, those dogfights with the TIE fighters were some of the coolest scenes. But then the videotapes came out, and it was practically ruined by the bright matting you could see all around the fighters as they moved around on the brighter TV screens. It's a good point. I yeah. I, it just doesn't seem fair to call it a blooper if you couldn't, couldn't see it, when it, when it the way it was intended to be seen. I agree. That is a good point. You shouldn't really call it a blooper. I'm not sure exactly what you'd call it. And for, I, for one, am happy that they didn't change it, even though I can see it now in the high def and everything. Uh, to me, I don't know why, but it just sort of, I just smile at it. I don't sit there and go, oh, that's terrible. I can't, uh, I can't stand the fact that I'm seeing it destroyed the whole effect. I, I just look past it all. So. Yeah, th- I mean, this isn't Plan 9 from Outer Space. If the whole rest of this episode was stupid, then you might pile on. But when so much of it is good, it's just sort of like, you know, hey, you know, I- I'll accept that. What the heck? Exactly, exactly. So, uh, But Smith is super relieved when the alien takes it and, and walks away. He uh, says something like, He didn't harm me. He didn't harm me. Uh, but for some reason, Will gets the idea to run over. I don't understand this at all. He runs over after the alien. He opens the hatch, and it just sort of falls off the hinges onto the ground. And there's nothing back there, just more cobwebs. Yeah, and- at first, I, did, I didn't know if that was deliberate or not, given that it was all made of cardboard. You know? <laughs> oh, maybe this is the blooper. <laughs> Uh, so. Yeah, but everything's disappeared. I mean, not only has the the door fallen off the hinges, but there's nothing behind the door. All the controls, the I think you had like a, a control panel before from Invaders from the fifth yes. dimension was back there. Now that's gone. Right. So it's it was just it, empty. It was a, yeah, it's a cool twist ending. All the ship's guts have suddenly vanished, as has the alien. And then the treasures, they also start disappearing. They do. It's, 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 and with more popping noises. Of Smith can't stand that. How vindictive. He took all of my, <laughs> all of my treasures. That vindictive creature. He took everything back. He must still be in there. And uh, then... Then, when everything's gone and the dust is settled, we get the final lesson from the good old sage, Professor Robinson. Again, he's ready with a full explanation. He's gone, and I couldn't be happier. The alien meant only good. Dad, I don't understand. Why did the alien give us things and then decide to take them back? Because Dr. Smith asked for too much. You know, he could have had anything he wanted. But like most people, it wasn't enough. He wanted more. When he tried to create a slave, the alien realized this. That vindictive creature. He would have stayed, Doctor. We made him leave because we were selfish. He must have really heard me. The alien must know that Will is good of heart because at the last moment, there's one last pop 
And little Will gets a parting consolation prize, a nice big apple. So once again, it's all's well that ends well. Yeah, it was another little twist on top of an already cool twist ending. But instead of a cherry on top, we get an apple, which is symbolic. Uh, it's, a, it's a symbolic clue as to what this story was really all about. Or at least that's my theory. Before we take a minute to introduce the cliffhanger for the next episode, Kurt, let me hear what you thought about Wish Upon a Star. I liked it. I liked it a lot. And, well, you did ask for it, though. So I'm going to give you my uh, John Robinson know-it-all opinion and proof that for just $60,000 in student debt, you too can pontificate like a professional English major and impress your coworkers <laughs> while you're shoveling fries at McDonald's. So uh, here, here's how it goes. Uh, this wasn't really a, a typical, you know, science fiction episode. It was really a um, what you call a morality play. I mean, you insinuated it before already, but it's a um, they dressed it up as a futuristic science fiction story. But it's it's a well known fact that writers steal all the time from the Bible. It's one of the most common literary sources. And as you alluded to, this was taken straight out of the Bible, the most famous Old Testament story that there is, which is the story of Genesis. And uh, everybody knows that uh, the apple is one of the most common symbols for that story. And if you'll recall, you know, at first, Will says, uh, well, what I'd really like is a bike, but there's no smooth services around here to, to, to ride on, which is which is technically true, but realistically, we saw in that last episode that if you just brush the sand away you know, from the boring <laughs> campsite, it's all wax floors around on that planet. But we'll forget that for a moment. I digress. So he then wishes for an apple, which is our cue that this is a Garden of Eden story. And a lot of people, you know, they always they always say it was an apple, but it, it doesn't actually say what the forbidden fruit was. Mm. But we always assume it was an apple. And a lot of people also assume that the story of Adam and Eve is a story about temptation. And it is, but it's also a story about basically free will and the abuse of free will. Because, you know, God could have made everybody obedient uh, uh, robots and they would have done exactly what they were supposed to do. But he gave them free will, which gave them the ability to make bad choices. Mm. And that is exactly what humans inevitably do, and that's what they did here. You can give them paradise, or in this case, you can give them a machine that allows them to have whatever their heart desires, and they're always going to do the wrong thing with it. So this is what—and and just to make sure that we got that message, they literally hit us over the head with the apple again at the end. You know, mm. So I, that, that's what I thought this was, uh, a, a morality tale delightfully delivered. I liked the, instead of the snake, we got the monster. It was great. I, I liked everything about it. And on top of all that, we also got to see Smith, his true colors and what he would do if you gave him unlimited powers. Which right. Is abuse it. He did. He did abuse it. Yes. Well, uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned, I don't know if it was last episode or the episode before, was that most TV shows have sort of the rule of threes where a third are really good, a third are okay, and a third you really probably don't need to watch more than one time. I like that, and I think I need to keep start keeping a list for these first season episodes. At this point, we're just a little over a third of the way through the first season. Do you have an idea which third this episode falls into? Really good, okay, or need to no need to rewatch. Well, when I first started watching it, I just I was entertained. But then when it got into the alien and the monster and the universal themes and all that other stuff, it it shot up in my excitement factor. And uh, even when it was over, I thought I I not only felt very satisfied, but um, I thought that this wasn't an episode that I wanted to watch again. 
but I had to in order to kind of, you know, take notes for, on it. And when I watched it the second time, I enjoyed it even more. So I was surprised. I thought it had a lot of substance to it. I liked it. Yeah, I would I say like. it's, it's in the top third, but it's, you know, it's not way up there in the top third, but I did, I did think it made it into that top third. I agree with you. I would put it in the top third tier. It's probably right on the border at this point, and I'll reserve judgment till we get at the end. I think that would be fun at the end of the first season to really categorize all the episodes. But yeah, I liked it um, for all the reasons you said. I liked the direction. I liked the the cinematography, the production values. They were okay. Um, the, 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 the aluminum foil, we can make fun of it, but for the time, it was probably very well done. Dr. Smith, I thought he was well written and played. It wasn't too silly, just kind of the right balance of humor and and selfishness. And as you said, seeing what he wishes for with the thought machine shows you a lot about his character. And even though, as you say, we're getting a morality play here, I didn't feel like it was nearly as preachy as the sky is falling. It seemed yeah. like it was it, they were allowing us to sort of go along with the with the plan here. Um, Alien was pretty good. Um, I had a whole theory about the alien, but I'm not even going to go into it now because I don't think it's uh, it's worth going into. But uh, I watched it three times prepping for the show, and, and I enjoyed it all three times. So I probably don't need to watch it again right away, but I'll watch it again. It's definitely not one that I, I would uh, say, eh, I've, I've seen it once and that's good enough. So thumbs up, top third. I was kind of a little mystified by the fact that, you know, the alien can create this device that can not only you know, translate into English your thoughts, but can also create whatever it is you think of. But at the same time, it doesn't seem capable of having another device that allows it to speak English, you know, to, <laughs> to the same creatures that it's translating to with the other, with the thought device. That seemed a little weird, but, you know, I mean, obviously you got to make the story and, and that, that you described it as a moan, moan, but it was kind of more like it was like this slow motion talking, you know, like there was something blocking. It's, it was trying to talk, but it couldn't. And it, it, that and the combined slow motion walking, that was pretty spooky. It, it Very nightmarish. Well, it was very nightmarish. And okay, so now you opened up the door. I'm just going to say this real quickly. I, I'm not so convinced that was an alien per se. I think because it came from the thought machine, I, in my mind, after I was thinking about it, I think maybe it was just a creation of the aliens. You know, Dr. Smith wished for a servant. And who knows, maybe it had too much wine when he was wishing for it. And so his his vision was a little bit clouded and the machine sort of created like a cyborg or a, a zombie or something like that. And at that point, whoever the creator was, that machine had been programmed to say, hey, uh, they've gone too far, get the machine and take it back. But who knows? Well, I like that. I like sometimes not having all the answers. I think a lot of TV shows and books and you know stories try to answer everything, but a lot of times a good question is better than a not so good answer. Mm, yeah, you get lets you fill in the blanks, I suppose. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, very good. So before we finish, uh, we get to see the cliffhanger on this episode. We'll go into this in more detail next time. It opens with a nice shot of the robot standing in front of a small balloon with what looks like a little Estes rocket attached below. The robot is doing a countdown for launch. All personnel are warned to stay clear of the launch area. Will and Penny are inside the Jupiter 2 observing, and Will explains they have to stay inside because even though that rocket looks small, it's got enough rocket fuel to cause a real blast. So after the robot releases the mooring line, that balloon gracefully climbs up into the night sky, and Will explains that the rocket will fire automatically at 1,000 feet. And so now that the area is clear, they go outside to observe. But uh uh-oh, 
At a thousand feet, we don't get a launch, we get an explosion. And that rocket has turned into a molten ball of fire and it's heading straight down towards the kids. Yeah, I think uh, Professor Robinson is somewhere in the vicinity. You could imagine anytime these kids are playing with miniature rockets, you know, it's sort of like giving your kids fireworks, you know. Yeah. Maybe you should be there and supervising, but he's not. No, no. But he walks in, as you said, right at the moment of panic because that ball of fire, and it's pretty threatening looking. It's coming right towards the camera. <laughs> Professor Robinson quickly just grabs the kids and sort of falls on them. He's acting as a shield. And when that freeze frame happens with that giant fireball, it looks like it's literally just a few feet above their backs. I think that's one of the coolest freeze frames we've seen. But unfortunately, we're going to have to wait, kids, because as always, we're warned to stay tuned till next week to find out what happens. And that's just right before we go to end credits for Wish Upon a Star. How are we going to be able to make it till the next week, Kurt? I don't know, but I have a feeling if I were to attend one of these Lost in Space conventions, I would be able to identify all the stand-ins for Guy Williams and uh, uh, Don. They're the guys with the big burn marks all over their backs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, gosh, that was really close. It was really close. I can't wait to see how they get out of this one. In any event, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 12th episode of Lost in Space titled the raft. That one's going to be a fun one, I think. So until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week, same time, same channels.